Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 150 for September 25th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about boiled linseed oil shelf life, being too picky about calibration, taming bull scraper tear out, and lapping the sole of a hand plane. But before we get to all that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And by ArborTech, makers of creative wood shaping tools. Have you heard of ArborTech's latest woodworking tool, the Mini Turbo? The Mini Turbo is a revolution in wood sculpting that can be used directly on the ArborTech Mini Grinder or fitted to any angle grinder. The Mini Turbo can be used freehand or with guides and templates. Head on over to ArborTech's website at arbortechusa.com to order the Mini Turbo today. Alrighty, so we've got a couple of things we need to announce real quick. There's going to be some changes, because change is good, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I love change. Change can be good sometimes. I object to all of it. <laughs> well, you're you're uh, two to one, so unfortunately you Don't. lose. Um, we have well, first of all, in the future, we will be breaking out Wood Talks website into its own entity. We think it's grown up enough now. You know, it's mature. It's getting ready to drive. So we're going to send it off on its own to be its own entity, split from the Wood Whisperer site, and you'll be able to get all the Wood Talk specific things at WoodTalkShow.com. So that's exciting. That is very exciting. I, I feel like a proud parent. Wait, I am a proud parent. <laughs> sort of. Uh, the other thing is, as as part of this, you know, we've been doing the live streaming for a long time now and have switched services and started to use YouTube. The problem was doing this on my Wood Whisper YouTube channel created a lot of issues where folks were not expecting to get just an audio podcast in a live stream format. So they're like, what the heck is this? This sucks. And it's like, <laughs> well, it's... It's an audio show, dude. What do you want me to do? <laughs> so I've been, I don't see what you're saying. How come I can't see it? I don't understand. So yeah, anyway, we got rid of that. And now we're doing the live streaming from our own Wood Talk Show channel. So if you want to subscribe to us on YouTube, you could do that at youtube.com slash user slash Wood Talk Show. And of course, it's Wood Talk. So it's, it's an audio show. So even when you click play on that, you're still just going to see the audio until maybe we decide to do something different with that. But what we hope to do in the future is start doing some video content where we get these questions sometimes in an audio format show. It can be difficult to show exactly what we're talking about. And this may be an opportunity for us to go in. We all three of us have cameras. We do video shows. So we'll be able to answer your questions with a, a detailed answer in a very quick, snappy sort of YouTube friendly format. And hopefully folks will enjoy that as well on the, the, the new YouTube channel. Yeah, with Definitely. choreography and everything. Dancing. Yeah, we'll have dancing girls. That'd be awesome. Yes, it is. Yep. Yeah. Now we should say though, because there I can hear I can hear them already. No, no video. We will continue doing an audio show. Yeah. This will primarily <laughs> be an audio show. For those of you who are screaming about I commute every morning and I need all this, don't worry. It's only getting better. Yeah. We're not taking anything away. It's more. Exactly. Because the, the big thing is that there are like you said, there are certain questions that would just so much more befitting a video answer versus the audio one. So that means there is equally even more answers that are questions that are better off in an audio format. So it, just think of it as like the videos are the prize in the bottom of the cereal box. Mm, Ooh, Those are rather cheap go. though, unfortunately. Well, <laughs> well that's um, what it's going to be like when you get mine. You're be like, so oh. it's a very apt metaphor. Well, it is what it is then. <laughs> uh, yeah. So look forward to that coming soon. And I also want to mention woodworking in America is coming up before you know it. October 19th 
is when we're going to have our meetup. So if you want to hang out with the three of us, maybe you don't. Maybe this is a good warning so you know where not to go on that Saturday. Uh, The Keystone Bar and Grill in Covington, Kentucky, uh, around 6 o'clock, 6 or 7 o'clock, October 19th. And we really, really hope you'll make it there. I also should mention, someone asked me, do I need tickets to the show to be able to go to this meetup? And absolutely not. This is an independent thing. If you don't want to go to Woodworking in America or you can't, but you do have time to make it to this event, definitely come out and say hi. Um, so there's no cover charge or anything like that to, to go to this thing. And you certainly don't need tickets to the show to get into our meetup. But we will have a giant tip jar on the uh, the bar. Yeah, it's so called Matt's pocket. That. <laughs> Matt's gonna have his pocket open and be like, "Here's the tip jar." Don't tell Shannon and Mark. Right. Hey, right. Do you guys know are they charging for access to the marketplace this year? Mm. I know I, they have in previous years, but I want to. I feel like that's changed. Don't know. Oh, that's a very good but question. That's just one of those things for those people that are like, eh, "I don't want to pay the money and go to WIA." Um, it's at one point I want to say it was like twelve dollars. It's so worth it going to the marketplace. It, that's actually one of the most fun things about the show. Oh, totally. Yeah. So, you know, don't don't entirely poo-poo the thing. If you don't want to go to the classes, that's cool. But, you know, our, our meetup should be starting shortly after they shut down the marketplace. So, you know, make a day of it. Bring the family. Just exactly. don't bring them to our meetup. That's no. probably and, not a good idea. And, and the Keystone has some really decent food. I should know I'm fat. So it <laughs> definitely is really good. See, now I always wondered about that. Is a fat person picky about their food um no not necessarily <laughs> i mean i'm just um, thinking about I the logic moments where i'm like i'm not eating that but i'll eat the thing next to it <laughs> okay just curious all right so let's move into what's on the bench i'll go first i uh i finished up that that not so rustic rustic table that i was telling you guys about that i had to put on pause for the blanket chest so i jumped right back into it got it filmed and i should have the first part it's going to be a two-part uh series first part coming out on friday on the free site now, so. this was all cedar, was that right? Yep, Western Red okay. Cedar, and holy smokes. Uh, Shannon, you made a comment about uh, when I when I posted a picture about planing the top uh, of one of the tables with my jack plane, we were talking about the relative softness of this stuff, and, and the plane just cuts through it like a like a hot knife through butter. Oh, yeah, this is the species that they use at woodworking shows yeah. to make planing look easy. It just makes you, <laughs> it makes you look good. And it's it, like the Rob Cosman wood species special. You know, right, oh, right. look, I tuned up this plane, and it works great. Yeah, well... <laughs> Dull butter knife planes this stuff well. And and for someone who uses mostly exotic wood species and very hard domestic species, this stuff is like cardboard. I mean, if I look at it wrong, it dents. It's like, oh, oh and there's a fingernail print in it. So um, very tricky to work with in that sense. But here's the good thing. It's a rustic table, so it just don't matter. <laughs> you know? like it can but I, I still somehow see you running around for those first few weeks and like, put a coaster under that. Yeah. yeah, so either way, um, the, the the table has a lot of nice little details in it, um, and that's why I call it the not-so-rustic rustic table, because there's a little more attention paid to, to something that's just like knocked together with two-by-fours. Um, so I look forward to putting that on the free site uh, at the end of the week, but that's uh, that's about it for me. Oh, the pictures of it were pretty nice. Well, thank you. Hey, well, you know, actually, it's kind of funny, because as you're wrapping that up, I'm actually doing a design right now for uh, Aiden's first real big boy bed because he had his old uh, twin ones for a while, which were him and his sister had shared that when they had a shared room at our old place. And it turns out that as they grow, they get bigger, they need a bigger bed. So we are now, we, we bought the mattress and he's doing the total college thing where it's on the floor. Actually, it wasn't just college, I did that through a good portion of my 20s also. <laughs> um, and so it's just laying on the floor and I said, well, let's, let's build a platform. Bed. I, I know this guy 
who has a show that built a platform bed, so I know it's possible to do it. And <laughs> let's look at some designs. So actually this weekend, uh, I sat down with him and said, what do you want the bed to look like? And he said, up off the floor and then walked away. So, <laughs> ain't that just like a teenage boy? It is. Exactly. His, his video awesome. games are calling. Man, a few words. I like that. Exactly. So that's we I, I, cinder I, blocks and move on. <laughs> I was I got I've got a whole bunch of milk crates and I said something about I've got some plywood and milk crates. And that's what I used in college too. So maybe you maybe you want that when I was trying to get all fancy and get up off the it was floor. It's good with enough that. for me. It's good enough for you. <laughs> exactly. So I, I spent a, a pretty much I think a good portion of Saturday uh trying to flush out some ideas and I used SketchUp of course for that. So I'm gonna have some I think some decent ish SketchUp drawings. I know a lot of people ask if I'm ever going to start doing SketchUp drawings for my my projects, and thankfully some people have stepped forward and done them for me. Uh, so I've, I've got these. I'm going to uh, tweak around with a little bit, but I'm hoping to get started on this. Uh, I'm going to say in, in in the next few weeks. So I'm cool. I'm really excited, and at the same time, I'm like, oh man, I really want to build my bench first. <laughs> Yeah, beds can be substantial projects. I mean, there in a lot of cases the design can be fairly basic, but it's just the sheer size of all the parts that uh, tends to be a little intimidating sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, good luck with that. Yeah, thanks. I'm really looking forward to it. I think. I think you hope <laughs> you'll find out. <laughs> so is that's it, that's is it a, a twin sized mat. It's a uh, yeah, it is queen size now that I think about it. Cause that's when we said, well, you know what, let's let's get you a really big one so that you can lay sideways or do whatever you need to. Nice. I've got one in my future too, and that's also spawned my wife to say, well, why don't you do one for a master bedroom? And I got to tell you, I'm a little scared of that because we have a king size bed mm-hmm. and that brings up some whole other things. There's like extra parts, you know, to, yes. to balance or to support in the middle of such a wide bed. And it's incredibly frustrating because you can look around, you can get all these great design ideas, mm-hmm. but you can't see like the innards of it. Um, well, and it's really... It's really kind of confusing exactly how I want to support that in the middle. Well, you know what's funny is I I, I built uh, Samantha and I a king size bed years ago. In fact, it was one thing that <clears throat> early on I it was a, a hidden project in the background. I never actually filmed it because I was so afraid of how it was going to turn out that I did not want to embarrass myself that bad. <laughs> and it's it's turned out really really fantastic. I mean it, it's it's solid. I don't know how that happened. But apparently, I'm actually a pretty decent woodworker, so it worked out good. But <laughs> right that on. that middle support thing was what freaked me out the most. The the headboard and the footboard, not so much. The the actual rails, uh, a little bit, because I was kind of concerned that maybe I wasn't making them beefy enough, and then I thought I was making them too beefy. But yeah, that that whole middle guts of how that mattress is going to stay in place. And the funny thing is, um, it, it that is probably. The the one part that I, I I feel the most comfortable with because it is rock solid. So cool, yeah. good to know. You'll have to make a SketchUp drawing. No, one of these days. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to take a look at that one. And I uh, well, I know just kind of like going with Aiden's bed right now. I have this thing so over engineered that hopefully over the next week I'll start removing things as I realize this is not necessary to put a car on top of this. So I don't <laughs> think I need these eighteen supports down the center. You know, that yeah. kind of a thing. So I, I spent so long since I've done any designing, I really went overkill on well, this. So I, know, I gotta though, I gotta kinda pare it down a little bit. When it comes to a bed like that though, sometimes it's just better safe than sorry. Um when I built that bed for the for the Dogon platform bed for the client, he really wanted it to be floating. He didn't want any support on the floor other than at the footboard and headboard. And I just kept looking at the design, I'm like we've got to do something like I I realize you don't want to see those supports, but we have to do something. There's got to be some sort of contact with the floor 
at the center of this structure. And without it, I don't feel confident giving you this project to sleep on. Like, <laughs> you know, so, so we, we went back and forth with it and eventually just wound up putting a center rail and then having uh, supports just a couple of feet that go under that rail and then the, the stretchers that go from one long rail on the side to the other uh, repeated throughout the design just gave it so much more support. You can't really even see them because it's so low. So it right. may as well not even be there visually, but ultimately you need that extra support. Otherwise, it's just for those bigger beds. I mean, I don't know how you could ever suspend them without it. Well, right. see, actually, that was one thing with this design, and this came a request from Samantha. So I'm trying to like, thankfully, Aiden is so low key; it's not that big of a deal. Like I said, the design was he was just happy to get it off the floor. But what we want to do is because occasionally he has somebody over, and we have family over, we have to throw Madison out of her room, and she needs to find some place to sleep. So we have an extra mattress that we were kind of thinking like almost like a trundle bed kind of a thing, where it's going to go underneath ah. his main bed, and so it's like one of those. It's just a, a twin size mattress, so it's it's you know not going to take up the whole entire space underneath there but at the same time it's like i've got to have it elevated just enough so that that will slip underneath there without any issues and at the same time how am i going to get if necessary a middle support down there Mm -hmm. down the middle and still get that mattress in there because i can't convince her to let me take a notch out of the side of the bed to have it wrap around the the middle support so that's where Mm -hmm. i'm like now, if I if I put an arch in here, is it the keystone at the top of the arch that holds everything in place? What's the weight <laughs> distribution? <laughs> nice. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I am too. So I'm gonna be. Hopefully, it won't look too much like your design. I swear, I didn't look, watch your show at all. <laughs> <laughs> by all, by all means, copy, copy, copy. <laughs> so, how about you, Shannon? What do you got going on? Well, I am. Uh, <clears throat> you guys, you get you know your drill bit, and it says it's you know, X whatever of an inch or an inch or whatever. And then you drill the hole and you realize that whatever you drilled it for doesn't fit. And you suddenly start to realize how the, you know, the, the deviation that's built into some of these things, Mm -hmm. you buy a drill bit and it says it's, you know, this size plus or minus 0.01, whatever thousands of an inch. Well, I'm installing hardware in my treadle lathe, putting in all the bearings and basically all the metal doohickeys that make it spin. And it, it it's infuriating. <laughs> I've got <laughs> two different types of bearings um, and they are 64ths of an inch difference. Ooh. And of course, I don't have that many drill bits, um, especially when you get into sizes above an inch. You know, I've got a, a drill index that's got, you know, broken down to 64th of an inch drill bits, but that only takes me up to a half an inch. Mm. And I'm dealing in like one and three eighths inch sizes. And it's just, it's infuriating trying to get everything to fit exactly right. And I'm getting into the point where I'm thinking of just drilling all the same hole and then wrapping the bearing in blue tape until it fits snugly <laughs> and moving on. But, you know, so I'm, I'm playing with um, those adjustable bits. You know, they have a little wing that can slide in and out to create the hole. And I think that's going to work for me. But those things are so off balance because there's only one cutting wing to it. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard, especially when you're just using a brace um, to, to keep the hole perfectly square. But it's just be, it's really highlighted the fact that normally I don't care because, you know, you drill the female part of the joint and you just fit the male part to go in. You know, if if the dowel or the tenon or whatever is too big, you just shave it down till it fits. Well, you know, the male part of these joints is a precision fit bearing or a precision fit rolled steel rod or something like that. And it, you know, I can't, I can't do that this time. And I swear 
none of these things are sized as they say they are. <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous. Even even like the the axle, my my spindle, my five eighths inch spindle for the treadle is a hair heavy of five eighths of an inch. And it's just like this is just killing me. <laughs> Nothing is going together like it's supposed to, which I guess is typical of any project, but you know, when it's wood you just shave a little away. Yeah, I was just so going to say, so nothing makes you appreciate wood for a project uh, more exactly. than, than working with metal, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, so nice. I, it's needless to say, like most of the things I build, this is taking three times longer than I thought it would. Just this one little part. You know, it's like <clears throat> when you finish the actual woodworking and it's installing hinges and things. Oh, I'm into the finishing touches. No, <laughs> no, those finishing touches are now going to take you, you know, eight hours longer than you thought it would. So oh, I'm having fun with that. That sounds like a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, let's jump into what's new. Got a couple of links to share with you. The first one, this is actually a great free resource for folks who want to learn SketchUp. And I know there's a lot of you out there because you email me and say, uh, how do you use SketchUp? Or do you recommend a website that has videos on this? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's quite a few, but this one is called Woodworking with SketchUp. That's the URL, actually, woodworkingwithsketchup.com. And these, he's got actually quite a few videos on here. I've watched the first few. Very well made, very easy to see, and uh, easy to understand. So if you're looking to sort of break the ice with SketchUp, and there's, it looks like he gets into some deeper topics as well, it's a free resource. Um, all he has is a little donate button there if you want to support the the cause. But you can't beat free tutorials that teach you how to use these things that really, I don't know, for when it comes to designing furniture these days, the first thing I do practically, I mean, if I'm doing like a, a unique shape or something, I'll use a pencil and paper first. But when I really get down to the nitty gritty and the details and the sizes of the parts and joints, I'm right into SketchUp. And it's it's one of my go-to tools these days. So it's great Absolutely. to have some some really good free resources out there for this. So woodworkingwithsketchup.com. I, I like the way he has these broken down, like the the, mm-hmm. the core SketchUp uh, tutorials. Then he has like the tool tutorials, time-saving tips, and then even goes into like woodworking tutorials. Yeah, like you know, so it, it's easy to find exactly what you're looking for without having to like go through every single one of these and click on it to see if that's what you're doing. Although I'll probably end up doing that anyways. <laughs> and for those of you who would like more of uh, SketchUps in my projects, uh, go to this website, learn this, and then c- contact me. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> nice. Um, nice. What's uh? Did you see the link on? Facebook, I feel like we should mention Bob Lang's new book that's coming out too, but I can't remember where the link is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's another SketchUp thing that's going to be an even more enhanced version that's got videos and things with it. But yeah, I don't remember. I don't know if it's a brand new title or it's taking his previous stuff and just expanding on it a little bit more. It's yeah. called uh, Building Blocks of SketchUp. Uh, in fact, when you go to his uh, Facebook page, it's uh, the most recent link he has up there. It's from the 22nd, and he says it's a, it's a new book preview coming out. So Okay, and it's at readwatchdo.com? Yes, he has yeah. it there also. Yep. Okay, I'll put the link in the show notes for that as well. Cool. Well, um, you guys uh, probably remember Scott Meek. We had him on the show a little while ago. Who? And um, yeah, Meek, he, he, Meek. he's some dude in North Carolina, and he makes planes. Does he have a beard? Um, and you know, he does. It's about three, we, three is, quarters is it, of is our it audience. A beard or is it a goatee? I don't <laughs> that, know. That narrows it down to a few people I know. So right. Well, um, Scott had actually contacted me months ago looking for some teak, and I figured he was making planes or whatever. But the volume of teak he was looking for was like. Dude, you're not. <laughs> how many planes are you making? And you know, he'd said something about he was doing something with Highland. Well, I never really followed up on it until I saw this, and it's uh, Highland Woodworking's 35th anniversary. So to commemorate it, they commissioned Scott to make 35 
wooden smoothers with uh, teak soles and flame birch bodies. So I just think this is awesome. This is this is like Scott's coming out party, if you will. Coming out party? Whoa. I don't know, I don't know if that's really... Where are you going dead, there, big boy? <laughs> Debutante party. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm not sorry. I'm very proud of that. Well, if it was that long car ride, and I noticed he was giving me the eye. I just assumed <laughs> it was because he wanted me to pull over because we had to go to the bathroom. So uh, as is typical with Highland Woodworking, um, our buddy Morton up in Boston did a video on this and, you know, pulled it out of the box. And it just it highlights the fact that not only are these really, really high quality planes, but they are when we say out of the box, nobody comes close to being as ready out of the box as Scott is to the point where the planes already set to take a thousands of an inch shaving. Mm -hmm. So literally Morton pulls it out of the box and just starts working right away, which I think is it's pretty dang cool. So there's a new video on it. Um, you can see the plane, but I'm just, I'm really happy for Scott to kind of see him hit the big time here. And, um, Highland Woodworking is now selling his planes, but you can get this special limited edition. There's only 35 of them, uh, to celebrate the 35th anniversary of Highland Woodworking. That is awesome. Congrats, that is Scott. That's really awesome. That's great. It's very cool. All right, let's move into our kickback, which all cow. And who you want to get all these, Matt? I yeah, didn't even read any of them I could do something like that. <laughs> all right, go let's, for it. All right, well, let's talk, start with this first one. Who is, it's from Tim in Ottawa, and I really feel like I should do something really Canadian, but that's so cliche. Uh, and, and Tim was responding to, I had mentioned last week kind of offhand that, you know, hey, do we have any reviews from our Canadian iTunes store? And he said, yes. <laughs> Canada has a separate iTunes store with its own set of reviews for your podcast. There are currently 23 lonely unacknowledged five-star reviews in oh, it for our podcast. They're going there. They're sitting there going, what about us, eh? Eh? You hosers? Come on down. <laughs> so, uh, so Glenn, uh, this is not really a kickback, but uh, like a close call. Um, wait, how did I get that one in there? I think that's something different. But uh, yes, you do have IT. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I mixed these two together because they both actually are from Canada. Yes. And Glenn also wanted to point out that we do have um, has some five-star reviews over there, and right. he has, thanks, hosers, take off, eh? So that really confused me. Dang it, you Canadians. You completely <laughs> messed me up on that. And I, I put in a little thing here for us with a, a a snapshot of the Canadian ones. But the thing is, it's not expanding, and my old eyes can't really see it. But I do see one that says, wood geekery at its best. And I'm going to have to agree. Uh, let me just read the names, right? The few that I can see here. Glenn V, Justin Starr, Franklin Pug, uh, Otacat, JL Young, and Smog? Smoog, 22, I think. Smoog. Nice. All right. Well, thank you, Canadian iTunes reviewers. We always appreciate that. Right. Now, I wonder how the Australian store is doing. Mm, every, you know what? Every uh, show, we should do a different store. We need to know about the UK store and, well, all the other ones. So, What about the Czechoslovakian store? Mm, I don't think they like us there. Maybe what about a Polish store. <laughs> yeah. could, that way, it would definitely work we out. We should into be our popular. Poll of the week. Yeah, we should be popular amongst the uh, the polls. Yeah, here we're huge behind the Iron Curtain. All right, so let's jump into our voicemail. That's all we have for kickback right now. Uh, this one has to do with boiled linseed oil from Chet. Hello, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. This is Chet Claus of Nashville, Tennessee. Quick question: Does boiled linseed oil have a shelf life. I've noticed, anecdotally anyway, that when I bring a new can of uh, BLO home, use it on a project, it dries well and quickly and thoroughly. However, six months, maybe a year later, when I bring that can out again and I use it, 
Um, drying time takes much, much longer, and sometimes it doesn't dry at all. So I'm wondering, is there a shelf life that we should consider and throw out uh, boiled linseed oil after a particular time? Thanks. Bye-bye. That's an interesting question. And for me, I have not noticed any particular specific shelf life on something like boiled linseed oil, but it can go bad. And typically you're going to notice that when you start to have some sort of solid in the can. Uh, you might get clumping or like stringiness and it starts to solidify. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when you know it's bad, but do a little digging and you'll find people talking about cans of boiled linseed oil that have been in their shop for 20 years um, and just, they're just sitting there and then they go to use them and it works fine. So what I'm wondering, especially if he's only talking about six months, I mean, that's something that has some serious longevity. So if you're noticing a difference after just, you know, that, that short period of time, Chet, I got to wonder if it isn't possibly the wood uh, you didn't mention right. what wood species you're using. Maybe you used it on a wood that doesn't necessarily take so well to a boiled linseed oil coating, something that has natural oil content and creates those issues for you. So um, I, like you said, it is anecdotal, but I'd like to know more about what woods you're using it on because especially after six months, you really shouldn't have any major issues. And if you did, you would notice it in the consistency of the liquid. It just wouldn't pour properly. Or like I said, there would be some sort of solid substance in the can, but ultimately BLO should last quite a long time. Like it's, I buy it by the gallon and I, even if I don't use it that often, I know it's always ready to go. If I can get the cap off. I was going to say that's like one right, I've that's never used. <laughs> that's what you use the uh, the expandable pliers for. Yeah. Grab a hold of that. And, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I've never used oil, linseed oil at all, but it, <clears throat> everybody that I've ever heard from that talks about it is like, yeah, I think I inherited a can from my grandfather. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't think yeah. it's something that's going to just like spontaneously. Like, it's not going to immediately just harden like a, a regular varnish would or, or a lacquer just that, you know, maybe you leave the lid on and it just solidifies on you. Shannon, you were about to say something? I, I wondered, the first thing that came to mind was, could it be the wood? Because um, mm-hmm. we were just talking about teak and Scott's planes, and that's right. one of those things where if you don't wipe that oil off with a mineral spirits or something like that, it wreaks havoc on it. I mean, I had a piece of, one of the first like exotic woods that I played with was Cocobolo because it was just so cool and pretty and everything. Mm-hmm. And like the finish never dried, yeah. never dried because I didn't wipe it down first. Um, the other thing is, is what was the weather like? You know, was he applying this boiled linseed oil and then like a major thunderstorm blew through and shot mm-hmm. the humidity through the roof? Yeah. That'll wreak havoc on it as well. Yeah, it so. could just be coincidental sort of uh, circumstances there. But let us know. Needless Chet. to say, it's probably his fault. <laughs> it's all your well, fault. You know, we could throw this out there. I know a little bit about Chet. He used to be a Michigander and then now he's down in Tennessee. So maybe he's just hasn't adjusted to the climate and isn't aware of that ex- increase in humidity. Yeah, there is some humidity down there. I know <laughs> because I was just there. It was pretty humid. From sticky. Coming from Phoenix, it was pretty bad. (laughs) Coming anywhere from Phoenix, it's gonna be like (laughs) that's "Hmm, true. A little moist. (laughs) We just went to a a comedy show, and the comedians were all complaining as soon as they got off the plane that their lips just immediately went (laughs) and like (laughs) dried up and started cracking. It's it's painful when you're not used to it. Okay, let's jump into our emails. I've got one here from Chris. He says, I've been Googling around and was taking a gander at Woodpecker's table saw gauge. It's pretty slick, but I have to ask, is that something I should even consider owning? And then if I find out that the blade and or the fence is out of alignment by a couple thou, how do I even go about adjusting that? As Matt said a couple of episodes ago, I just screw it up more. At these prices, shouldn't it come aligned? And (laughs) (laughs) and he uh, gives us a YouTube video showing this particular Woodpecker table saw gauge. Um, 
Oh, here's the thing. The gauge is really a fancy dial indicator. And the idea is the way that they set it up is it's on this circular, um, like this little cylinder that goes into the miter slot. So it always self-centers. So you don't have to have any sort of fancy setup or any kind of rig to slide it because that's typically how you're going to check your fence alignment and also your blade uh, to make sure that it's not out out of whack. And you run it along the miter gauge and then use the little uh, dial indicator to tell you how far out you are. Now, I thought what would be interesting to talk about here is, I mean, because setting up, that's something I think that's a little beyond the scope of, of the audio show to talk about how we actually make these adjustments. But isn't there a point where you start to measure and your ability to measure exceeds your ability to adjust? And should you go down that path because it's just the source of problems? I mean, over, over the years, I've gone back and forth with this, but there are some tools that I'd almost rather not know. Like until it, until it becomes a physical problem that shows itself in my work, either, you know, for safety reasons or accuracy, it's really not a problem until it's a problem. How, how do you guys feel about that with your setups? That's, that's exactly how I handle it. I mean, it, to me, it boils down to the same thing as how often do you clean your tools? What do you mean? You actually clean them yourself? <laughs> <laughs> They're self-cleaning, right? Yeah. You're rubbing wood over them all the time. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, this is an ignorance is bliss thing for me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I I remember watching one of these videos with a little like magnetic dial caliper thing and the little like boom arm thing. You should come in and you measure the run out on the blade and everything. And um, <clears throat> I actually did this because my my Delta saw when I bought it, it had one of those like special deals at Woodcraft and it came with one of these little sets, uh. these little dial caliper magnetic base sets. And it was like, Oh, okay, I'm going to measure this. And I remember thinking the exact same thing that Chris just said. Wait a minute, shouldn't it come aligned? And because I was off like, I don't know, six thousandths of an inch from the front of the blade to the back of the blade. And I spent probably two hours trying to dial that in. And it wasn't until after I was done that I was, it suddenly occurred to me that I, I, there's like no noticeable performance difference. Yeah. <laughs> None at all. And I was just like, I feel like an idiot now. It was basically I was sold the undercoating on that table saw. (laughs) Right. I I think this type of tool, as I I look at something like this, the only thing I keep thinking of is this definitely caters to the retired engineer that we hear from periodically that Mm -hmm. is really, really – that's breaking out the feeler gauges when it comes to uh, certain uh, joinery techniques that it's like one of those – it's wood. Just – Cram it together. It's going to be fine. Yeah. And and that said, I do think it is a good idea to have some sort of a dial indicator setup. Maybe not necessarily the woodpecker version, but you can put uh, you can make your own with an inexpensive uh, overseas made indicator. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you should have an idea of how far out it is. The thing is, I don't know that I would – you have to decide where to draw the line because even if you can detect a thousand, uh, one thousandth of an inch difference, just run that along your fence. Unless you've got one of those like perfect extruded aluminum fences or one of the INCRA fences, chances are the waviness in the fence itself goes beyond you know three to four or five thousandths of an inch across right. its surface. So as you go across, you know you really just have to think in, in more macro terms on that. And I don't know. I don't know exactly what the tolerance would be on that, but maybe – look at every five thousandths or something like that. <laughs> Consider the five thousandths your smallest increment that you're going to be concerned about. Um, but again, yeah, this is something that I think can lead to frustration and you got to know your tools. I mean, if you're just using a 
I don't know, a contractor table saw, this may be a very frustrating thing for you to own, but at least it answers questions. But go into it with the right mindset. Know that you may not be able to adjust to a certain level and you won't be as frustrated when you find out that, okay, I'm, I'm three thousandths off. That's good enough. Right. All right. Yeah. There's a point where you get it set up so precisely and then if you bump into the saw, <laughs> it's off. Yeah, don't, you'll, you'll spend more time trying to realign it than you will actually doing anything with it. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I know this rabbit hole because I, I remember going <laughs> down it and then I'm at the point now like I hate holes, rabbit holes. <laughs> I had this complaint recently about my jointer and I'm thinking – and also my drum sander. And I'm thinking these tools – to be, you know, to work properly, no, they don't have to be perfect to the thousandth, but they do have to be close, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. within five to ten thousandths in, in most cases. But the problem is the, the the type of adjustment mechanism included on most of these tools is macro in every sense. So, like, you tug it and it just goes bloop. All right, that's an eighth of an inch. <laughs> you know? So, so how do you how do you reconcile the, the the what it really needs with what you're able to do with it? Well, you just kind of tug on it twenty times until one of those luckily gets you right where you need to be. Um, but it is super frustrating that these tools sometimes do require a level accuracy that isn't even included in the engineering of the tool to be able to set it up at. So yeah, fun stuff. Feel your pain, Chris. All righty. Uh- Brian wrote in and said that last year I salvaged a cherry tree that came down on a windstorm. I have rough turned most of it into bowls and set it aside to dry. Now they are dry and I'm doing the final turning. However, I'm getting a large amount of tear out when using my bowl scraper. I keep it sharp when turning, but still get tear out. Do you have any tips on reducing tear out other than keeping sharp tools? Well, that's just that's just it, isn't it? <laughs> it, it comes down to sharp tools. Other than now, that, Shannon, you're not listening. I know other than, well, here's the first thing that I have to say, cherry, uh, especially, you know, something that you salvage yourself, uh, depending on how long it's sat, cherry can get kind of punky from time to time. Um, it, it will rot relatively easily. Um, it's a very sweet wood. So the bugs love it. So there's always that instance where you're going to see inconsistency in the density of the grain, um, throughout, uh, a bowl blank. So that may be some of it. You may be getting tear out in one area and not in another, and it could just be the actual consistency of the wood itself. Now, um, the wood turning purists, of which I am not skilled enough to be, would tell you the reason you're getting tear out is because you're using a scraper. Um, a, a scraper does exactly that. It scrapes the surface. It's not actually cutting and slicing the surface. So you can get that scraper super, super sharp, but it's still never going to cut as cleanly as something like a bowl gouge. So that may be okay in a harder wood like maple, but when you're dealing with a relatively soft wood like cherry, even putting aside the potential for it to be punky in certain places, that scraper has to be that much sharper to deal with those that softer wood. And you just may not be able to get a scraper that sharp. So it may just be you're using the wrong tool here. Now I say that um, and then tell you going to a bowl gouge is going to be a little bit harder. It requires a little bit more technique. You know, you can stick a scraper in there and you you uh, present it to the wood as kind of a trailing angle and it makes all things nice. It's like the sandpaper of, of wood turning tools. Um, here's the thing though. There might be an in-between that you can go with. Just like with a card scraper or a cabinet scraper on flat work, you can roll a burr. You can roll an edge on a wood-turning scraper. 
And uh, there are you know specialized tools out there that allow you to precisely roll an edge on a scraper, or you can just take a burnisher, just like you would with a card scraper. Once you've got it sharpened, and essentially the scraper is um, it's creating like a 90 degree or, or a real high angle. I think a lot of them are sharpened at 60 or 70 degrees. I don't know. I'm just pulling that out of thin air. But they're sharpened at a very high angle, and that that cutting edge is that rather blunt um, angle there. If you use a burnisher to slightly roll that edge, it goes from scraping to cutting at that point, exactly like a card scraper would be. Now, obviously, at high RPMs and high levels of torque and things, that burr won't last as long. So you may have to keep going back and refreshing that. So if the scraper is what you want to do, in these softer woods, that burr may be your lifesaver. Otherwise, I would recommend getting a really good bowl gouge and learning how to use it in that tough spot He's, he doesn't say this, but I can see where it's happening, mm-hmm. probably in that transition from edge grain and ingrain um, on along the curve or maybe that bottom section of the bowl is where he's running into this problem. So try the burr. If that doesn't work, get a bowl gouge. Okie doke. Okie doke. Matt. Uh, that, that's actually good to know because I was thinking like, why can't I use a scraper when I'm doing these rings and people keep telling me no? So, mm-hmm. Well, right. you're going to run into that wood turning snobbery. You know, it's a, I, you see the same thing in fishing. Well, I only use dry flies. Well, all right. Well, I want to catch fish. You know, <laughs> I want to finish this bowl. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of scrapers. Let's face it. Easy wood tools are basically scrapers. Well, you know, and that's the thing is you hear that word scraper. And my first you know thought is like a card scraper or something like that. And what do you use a card scraper for? When the grain is a little tricky, it helps you out <laughs> quite a bit. So, you know, right. logic only tells you that it goes that way. But obviously woodworking is not a logical thing. Well, here's the thing, though. A card scraper, we rely upon that burr to do the actual cutting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we talk about <clears throat> excuse me, how when you use a card scraper and you see dust instead of shavings, it's time to sharpen the scraper. And that's exactly what's going on. You've worn that burr back, so you're just dealing with that 90-degree edge. Um, and maybe the edge is slightly rounded over at that point. But it's that burr that does the cutting with the scraper. Mm-hmm. And mm. that's a step that not many people do. Um, I know I, I never did, and I actually bought one of those fancy jigs you can buy at you know, any of the wood-turning supply houses where it's this um, kind of metal plate that has two pins on it, okay. and you, mm-hmm. you reference the, the shaft of the scraper against one pin, and it kind of leverages uh, the, the cutting tip against the other pin, and it, it creates that burr. It's really hard to describe. But if you go to you know, uh, craft supplies, woodturnerscatalog.com or Penn State, um, you can look up a bowl burnisher and you'll see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a nice thing. It, you can very quickly do it. And if you are going to have to kind of continually turn that burr, it might be nice to have one. But at the same time, you know, a regular old burnishing rod will be just fine. Nice. Okay, cool. I'll have to add that to my uh, arsenal when I actually get the the nerve to go ahead and get back onto the lathe again. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, well, we have a question that came in from Terry, and I figured of all people to answer this question, <laughs> I am probably the most qualified. <laughs> Banana it's hands banter list. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You got you to, uh, before you do this, Matt, you got to tell the story just in case people don't know this. Okay. Well, a little backstory here. This question from Terry is about lapping the sole of a hand plane. And if you're not familiar with it by now, somebody amongst the three of us um, <laughs> thought he was doing a really great job of lapping the sole of a hand plane because some of the magazines say you have to do this and 
this individual, okay, it's me, uh, decided to do it on a brand new Veritas number four and a half. And it wasn't until taking a class with Chris Schwarz and uh, Thomas Lee Nielsen that I finally approached Chris and said, hey, for some reason I'm having trouble with this plane. And he tried working on it and he's like, I can't figure out what's going on until he put a straight edge to the bottom and was like, what the, did you do to this plane? And Thomas <laughs> was standing over my shoulder laughing. We all had a good guffaw. <laughs> so it turned out that uh, – and then on top of it, Chris asked if it was okay if he could write an article about banana hands ruining a soul of a plane. And so if you go looking through the archives at Popular Woodworking, just do banana soul, banana hands, <laughs> something like that, and you will see a really neat picture, and that picture belongs to me. <laughs> just don't uh, look at banana hammock. You don't want that. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Make sure you just – yeah, banana soul, S-O-L-E. I'm sure if you do S-O-U-L, that might bring up a whole other uh, set of pictures too. <laughs> banana soul. I'm not finding it, but I'll keep looking. Okay. So anyways, though, uh, so this question comes in from Terry and he says, I've worked mostly with power tools and I'm trying to shift a bit more into hand tool work. Currently, I'm trying to lap the sole of an old Stanley number four smoother and it's taking a lot longer than I expected and progress seems to be slow to invisible. So this has led me to three questions. One, I'm using 80 grit wet dry uh, sandpaper. Is this the good choice or is there a better one? Two, should I be using a lubricant with the sandpaper? And three is three-quarter inch MDF, a sufficiently flat base substrate to do the lapping on. It's really about the flattest thing of sufficient size that I have available. Now, my my answer to Terry's question here is I'm going to start with that number three. Is the three-quarter inch MDF a sufficiently flat uh, surface to be working on? And personally, I feel like it, it is if it's sitting on uh, equally sufficiently flat surface itself. So... Like with my current workbench, I have a nice little dip somewhere in the middle. So if I were to take that three-quarter inch MDF and, say, position it anywhere near that dip, as I'm putting downward pressure onto that plane to do the lapping, uh, that MDF is going to flex on me, and it's now going to create a slight hollow also. So my suggestion would be if if the three-quarter MDF is all you have, I would beef that up maybe like add two layers of three-quarter MDF, maybe even go to three layers. You want something that's really rock solid so that when you are applying all that downward pressure onto the hand plane, you're not going to have your substrate uh, flex on you because unknowingly, even if it, it does it just a little bit, you'll actually kind of give it a mirror image with the sole of that hand plane. And that's, of course, the thing you're trying not to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, another one oftentimes when I would would – do this with my old planes because once I learned don't do this with new planes, uh, do it with older planes if you have to, which is a whole other can of worms. We can talk about that sometime. Um, I, I like to use, say, the wing from uh, my table saw, especially when I had the granite one. That was great because I could get it wet if I was using, uh, say, the wet, dry sandpaper and I decided to, to spray some water on it to ease that along. But now that I have a cast iron one, I would still end up doing it. I just wouldn't put any lubricant on it. So say use the cast iron wing from your table saw, maybe a jointer. You want a really dead flat surface to be doing all that downward pressure on. Now, this leads me to uh, the first question using the 80 grit sandpaper. Uh, that is actually a place when I want to really remove a lot of material. Um, 80 grit is kind of like a starting point for me, and that will usually uh, remove sufficient amount of material I have a much older plane that I ended up going back and trying to figure out everything I did wrong after talking with some experts about it. And I got really, really good results with it. And 80 grit is where I started. 
Um, it does at first feel like, depending on how bad the plane is, that it's going to take forever. Um, so, yeah, start at the 80, and then once you get those marks and you are using a reference straight edge to make sure that it's nice and flat, uh, then you can move on to subsequent ones, you know, start working your way up through the grits. As for a lubricant for the sandpaper, um, I really didn't use one. I mentioned that I use water once in a while, like when I was going uh, with the the wet dry sandpaper. But a lot of times for me, it's just a matter of getting that swarth out of there, just taking a brush, moving it out of the way. Um, you know, I would I would stop periodically, especially because the hand plane is going to get hot. So uh, I'm not really too worried about it. But if you do do some sort of lubricant, um, mineral spirits is a great way to go with that. You know, you just want something to help kind of move that swarth off of the sandpaper. So you're not really, you know, clogging it up quite a bit because it might, you might actually find that you're removing a lot of material. One thing I do want to add is before you go about doing any of this lapping of the hand plane, why don't you check it first and see how bad it really is? Because if you have a, a vintage plane and you put a straight edge on the bottom of it and there is like a huge belly in there, chances are that plane actually probably should just be on the shelf and you could take a look at it and wish it a happy retirement. <laughs> there is a certain point that I just, <clears throat> I don't care how long it's been in your family or, you know, maybe the history behind it or something like that. There, there's a certain point where you're probably doing way more work on that plane than it's really worth and you could potentially vandalize it so you don't want to do that <laughs> i've been vandalized, vandalized. <laughs> that's the best term i've ever heard that's awesome vandalize it. so yeah so that, that that's that's pretty much my 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 big thing with it is just that's a that's a uh, felony offense in michigan isn't it it, it is now <laughs> yeah, they're, they're running it through the uh the state senate right now to see if they can if they can get that on the books so i, I think i think you just have to pay a fine and you're okay though now, Fantastic. Matt, do you want to have the whole sole flat? Well, or? actually, thanks for asking that. Hey. No, usually for myself, with uh, any of the ones I've been working on, I like to have it just in key locations. So like at, at the toe, directly around the mouth, and then at the heel itself. I'm not really uber concerned about those middle spots in between th those particular areas. Uh, I think it, it's... In an ideal world, that would be really awesome to have that. But at the same time, those are the key areas, uh, They when, at least when I've been doing it, that I'm only concerned about those. In fact, as long as those are in the same plane, I'm, I'm ready to, to just put that plane to work. Hmm. That sounds like a lot of work to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's what's funny because you, you hear these guys who are restoring a number seven or a number eight, and it's like, oh, man, that God. is so much steel. That is to get perfectly flat. And oh, like like a number five. I mean, a number five yeah. to me is like that thing is. I, I could throw it across the room and drop it off a building, and I'm still going to just pick it up and use it on my wood. I'm not worried about that being, you know, this super in you know that that three four thousandths of an inch kind of a thing it's like it's not happening and that's what it comes down to what are you actually going to use this plane for I, I just did a video on this so i've been getting a lot of questions about it you know a smoother plane this makes perfect sense because you might be taking a thousandth of an inch shaving so technically the sole should be flat to within a thousandth of an inch or at least those key areas you just mentioned should all be in the same plane to within the thickness of the shaving you plan to take but you know joiner planes and jack planes they're taking medium shavings, you know, yeah. seven, eight, 10, 12 thousandths of an inch is, is what I would call medium. And I wouldn't even measure those shavings in thousands. 
those shavings are measured like on a normal ruler. And, right. <laughs> um, and, and people are getting way too carried away on this. I'm so glad you said this because if it's drastically out of flat, to me, that's an indication something wrongs with the casting. Yeah. And, you know, it might, it released some tension somewhere in the casting and it might just do it again if you flatten it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I could be totally wrong there. I don't understand this, but I remember having this conversation with, um, um, not Tom Lee Nielsen, but one of his minions when I toured the, um, the factory up there and they were talking about like the intensity, the, just the level of, 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 um, care that goes into the casting of those. And they, they have their own forge now. And, you know, when people start to ask, why is Lee Nielsen so expensive and go take the factory tour and you'll see, <laughs> you know, it's that, that process that we never see and actually creating that casting and making it free of air bubbles and free of, you know, bound up tension and everything. Um, planes don't, you know, go out of flat unless there's something inherently wrong with the soul itself or someone's used it for 800 years you know, and all they did was work in the middle of it right. or they end up being vandalized. <laughs> well, you know, another thing is if you think about it, people, I don't know if, how many times you've gotten this question. I'm sure you've had this one once in a while. People will ask you about what's up with the, with these corrugated bottoms. Have you ever had a plane okay. that had a corrugated bottom on mm-hmm. it? Um, I have, a, or I used to have an old number five that was a corrugated bottom. And I know that there were smoothers that had this corrugated bottom. And it's like one of those, if they were so concerned, they being the manufacturer, that these things are so dead flat, 100 percent along the length of that bottom of the sole why would they do this corrugation because right. now you've got these stri- these strips right down the center that are more or less not flat to the surface so that apparently they're not impeding the use of the plane so yeah it's it's definitely i i got over beating myself up making sure that the whole entire thing was 100 percent dead flat when i suddenly realized i don't need that <laughs> nice right. All right. Well, I guess that'll push us into our iTunes reviews. If you're an iTunes user, iTunes user, you can look us up in the store, look for Wood Talk and click on ratings and reviews. And then you can ask Matt how he gets that smoky look with his eyeshadow. Oh, I totally, I go to, it's a Jersey thing. I've been watching a lot of Jersey Licious and let me tell you Lack something. Lack of sleep, I thought. Well, there's that too. I do now have a 16 year old daughter who potentially can drive. Nice. Yeah. That'll keep you awake at night. Uh, we'd like to thank Baseman28 and Pinky Werewolf. That's a great name. Who had this to say? Informative yet entertaining with hints of oak. He says, I enjoy wood talk on my iPhone, in the garage and shop, at work, or at night before bed. Sometimes your voices rise above my CPAP to serenade me off to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) There are those times when I wake up many episodes away from where I began and tell myself that the knowledge is etching itself into my subconscious mind. Then a couple of jokes come into my head and I have to dismiss them as not my own material. Matt, what's the name of your floppy hat again? That was great. Live long and prosper. Matt, what is that called? Don't make me remember (laughs) Wooby. I'm going to get sad now. Wooby. Wooby's gone. Hey, speaking of CPAP, you should enjoy that when you're sharing that room with Tom. (laughs) Uh, The white, yeah, well, you know what? Sometimes I I have to sleep with headphones on if I'm like in a strange place. (laughs) So I'm listening to like jazz in my uh, head when I go to sleep anyway. So I won't hear his uh, thingy that he has to put on his face. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, remember that today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com and ArborTech at ArborTechUSA.com. 
And of course, we have to thank our recurring donors. And uh, while these might not be recurring, I don't remember. But uh, David F., Jacob B., and Bradley R., thank you so much, the three of you, for helping us out. We always appreciate it. And if you'd like to help us out with either a recurring or a one-time donation, you can go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in that left-hand column, and you'll see a few links that uh, show you exactly what you need to do. And we always appreciate it when you do that. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I guess, Matt, if you want to give them the contact info, we'll get out of here. All right, folks. Hey, you have a comment, a question, or maybe a topic suggestion. You know what? There's several different ways you can contact us. Say you want to remind me about my my poor Wooby, and now I'm going to be going right back into my <laughs> menopause. So I just want to thank all of you. Mark, get ready for those emails. Okay. Uh, leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. And you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And hey, don't forget to leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Nice. Now I got to go get that smoky eye going on pretty soon. Do better. It really does. It does make you look uh, five years younger. So (laughs) (laughs) that also makes you look like Dave Navarro. Oh, cool. (laughs) I can live with that. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. See ya. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.